Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. Today I'm speaking with Dr Andrew Peters, an Associate Professor in Wildlife Health and Pathology. Andrew spent four years catching wild migratory birds and living in remote parts of northern Australia and Papua New Guinea and now works in pathology and prostatology. I'm not going to pretend to know what that means. Andrew, welcome to Charles Sturt Stories today. Thanks for having me on the program. A pleasure. Now, I'm keen to talk to you about what you do and how you came to do it um, and what prostatology is and what all these words mean. But can you tell us a bit about from graduation to now? I believe you started your career as a vet in 2004 and now you're an associate professor. So can you talk me through, I guess, what led you down that path and into this career? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, I guess my, my career path started a long way before I even became a vet in a very early childhood interest in, in natural history and the outdoors and in wildlife and, and in the natural world. That began, began really early and I've, I'd always maintained a very strong interest in that. And I guess going through high school, uh, I sort of looked, um, or even before that, looked at what career options were open to me. And I think common to many young people, the career that stood out for me was as a vet. And I think, you know, the funny thing is in retrospect, I'm, I'm not sure this, if that was the most direct path to, to where I am now or to what I wanted to be. But it's really a conspicuous career for a lot of younger people. And I mean, if there are any younger people listening, what I would encourage them to do is to, by all means, think about vet as a career path. But don't be afraid of pursuing the pure sciences and just, just you know, focusing on, on being a scientist because there's a lot of, you know, if you're interested in, in, in science, then, then don't, you don't necessarily have to look for an applied sort of career path. You know, what really interested me intellectually and from a career perspective was work on wildlife and mm. on birds particularly. And I um, did further study and completed some professional qualifications in, in bird health. And after about four or five years, I really hit a bit of a fork in the road about where to go next and realised that, you know, the, the, big, the big gap was in my ability to, to do research and, and solve some of the, the bigger problems. You know, in vet practice, I just saw case after case coming in that, um, particularly in wildlife, that we knew very, very little about. And it just really sort of frustrated me a bit and made me feel that desire to, to be able to start to do research and answer some of those questions. And that sort of attracted me to CSU. And I actually came to Charles Sturt to essentially follow a supervisor, someone who I thought would be the ideal person to supervise project looking at bird health. And that was uh, an extraordinarily successful experience and, and, and positive experience. I did my PhD in, in um, three and a half years and that was a really exciting time where I spent a lot of time in the field catching wild birds up in northern Australia and in Papua New Guinea. It took me to some extraordinary places and, and just discovering new things and realising I think then just how much there is still out there to be discovered and it really was an eye-opener right from the beginning that discovery is, is really just about opening your eyes and, and seeing what's around us. And, uh, and it really was an 
incredibly positive experience. And from there, an opportunity to teach at Shellstert became available. And um, I've stayed here ever since. And um, I've really had the freedom to pursue the research that I'm interested in, which is on a mixture of parasitology. But more broadly speaking, I, I focus mainly on wildlife health um, in a very broad sense. And and get to do some fantastic teaching of our of our highly motivated undergraduate students, particularly to vet science. I do a lot of teaching for our veterinary science students, and that is another really enjoyable component of, of my job. Oh, you're living the dream, Andrew. Honestly, our vet science students here are just some of the most passionate students, and our environmental science students are very, very similar, very passionate about the environment, what they can do to make positive changes, which is wonderful. But taking it back a little bit, birds. Birds, birds, birds. What? Why birds? I don't know. My love since I was a little child has always been nature and, and, and being in, in nature and the complexity of it and the interactions between things in the natural world and, and the dynamic. That was always going to be something that, that attracted me. And, and I can't really have imagined any career path where I didn't end up going down this, this sort of trail. When I was a, a young boy, uh, my parents got some birds for me um, to look after, and I think that really oh. woke the bird interest, and yeah. and that was really an outlet for that love of wildlife and and um, natural history. So so it was sort of inevitable that that was my my first love within this this area of science, but. Mm. But the the funny thing is that that, that broader interest in in uh, the natural environment is really what wins, and I'm I find it's just as fascinating to learn about about botany or um, mammals or or any kind of other group of animals, invertebrates, or any aspect of of the natural world. But my my first love was birds. Oh, speaking of birds, I mean, I'm not sure if they get a good or a bad rap, but. We're currently, right now, chatting in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Is I mean, do these types of viruses come from birds? I know we've had the avian flu. What what kind of role do these birds play in things like that? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. And there's no doubt that some important infectious diseases have come out of birds and entered humans. And I think, you know, when we think about birds and bats, particularly. Um, they're two groups that have been overrepresented in, in emerging infectious diseases in people. And uh, there's some good reasons why that is. And two of the reasons are that they're everywhere. So mm -hmm. bats are actually the most abundant mammal group in the world. One in every five mammals is a bat. Oh. So, so they're everywhere. And we don't see them often, but they're all around us. And birds are the same. You know, birds are one of the dominant vertebrate groups on Earth, and they go everywhere, and they surround us in our lives. So it's not that surprising that there's enough overlap every now and then for, for diseases to spill over. And the other thing is that some bats and also some bird populations are very similar to ours. They're very social. They can exist in very large flocks or large populations and that means that some of the infectious diseases that they have sort of mimic the kinds of transmission dynamics we see in people. So, mm -hmm. um, so those are the kinds of reasons why birds and bats are both uh, responsible for some of the more significant 
emerging infectious diseases that have emerged in people, or at least they're the source, original source. You have absolutely terrified me telling me that bats are all around us, Andrew. <laughs> God, I do not I like that. <laughs> it's, it's a funny thing, actually. They have a because, bad rap. <laughs> um, they do, and, and yet because they are everywhere, they play these major ecosystem roles. And in fact, you know, most of us would be happily sitting outside in the summer having a barbecue, and what we can't see is that the air above us is full of tiny little microbats quietly eating all the insects and taking away all the mozzies. And and they do actually have a a very significant measurable impact on Mm -hmm. reducing insect burdens in agriculture, for instance. There is a major disease causing catastrophic declines of some of these insect-eating bats in North America. And unfortunately, that's that's having flow-on effects to agriculture. And the expected cost to agriculture for insect damage and increased insecticide use is really substantial. So it just shows you that, you know, they, we may not see them, and that's because they don't want to have anything to do with us, but they're busy, busy, busy little bees. They are um, eating insects, they're pollinating trees, they're dispersing seeds and forests. They're doing a lot of things that we actually rely on. So, so they do. Mm. They, may they need more credit. Yeah. But they do need more credit, absolutely. Yeah. So when... It comes from viruses jumping from birds or bats to humans. I mean, is it because we're handling them? Is it because we're involved in their physiology and environment like more so than the other way around? Because obviously they don't try and get near us most of the time. Or is it because we're eating them? Like how does that transmission happen between yeah. animals and humans? That's a really good question because the reality is that these viruses are present in bats and in birds and in all other wildlife and have been for millions of years. So, you know, the question is why now? Why, why do these things happen at a certain place and time? And why do they spill over into people at, at a certain time and not all of the time, for instance? And the reason really comes down to the fact that we need to see some kind of change in either wildlife or in us, or some kind of environmental change or a social human change that will allow these things to happen. And what they do, those changes, is they get rid of all the little barriers that are there all the time that stop these things from happening. And so, for instance, there's quite a lot known about Hendra virus emergence in horses and people in Australia. Hendra virus is naturally found in a couple of species of flying foxes. And um, we now know that it's really through disruption to their winter feeding habits that they have changed their behaviour, that they have increased stress, and that's led to increased contact with people and with horses in particular. And that's the key driver for for why we are seeing this virus emerging as a a threat these days. So, you know, when we really dig back down into why these things are happening in a certain place of time, we we see that it it is ultimately what we are doing, but just sometimes it doesn't seem like it's directly connected at the time. Um, And that really has to be the focus if we're going to stop this happening again. And, you know, given the, the extraordinary impacts on people's lives, you know, it really highlights the fact that this is something we need to focus a lot more on. Oof. So, I mean, thinking about either a, a social or physical or environmental change that allows it to happen, there's been so much chatter about wet markets and a lot of maybe even histrionics. Uh, is, is it the wet markets that is the problem or would we? is it the fact that we live in such close quarters that we 
the way we treat the environment, we're so industrialised, you know, is it a broader problem than just saying, oh gosh, we have to shut down wet markets? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's um, wet markets is such a broad term, even within China, mm. um, in terms of what that means and the kinds of activities that are happening there. And wet markets have been an important part of society, in fact, even um, in European society for for a long time, um, um, for thousands of years. And it's only relatively recently that we've moved in countries like Australia to a sort of more supermarket sort of approach to where all our food is packaged and and um, and that in itself has some some problems in terms of sustainability. But the reality is that it's it's not just about market per se. It's really about certain activities that are high risk that might be associated with some of those markets. And so in this case, we know that there are a few major risks. One of them is the wildlife trade. And that's because with the wildlife trade, we mix species that don't normally mix. We put animals under enormous stress Mm. and we interact with animals that we wouldn't normally directly interact with in the natural environment. And what that does is it really breaks down a lot of the barriers to, to spillover of viruses from wildlife into us. And the other thing that is really important here is the role of globalisation and modernisation. You've got this clash between ways of doing things that we might have got away with in the past because human population dynamics were quite different mm-hmm. and things would be much more localised and wouldn't go very far. But today with this deeply interconnected world, these things also have an opportunity to emerge in a way that they might not have had in previous centuries. It's, we are so in each other's pockets now. It makes me want to run away and live off a veggie patch. Absolutely. <laughs> Although I, I saw a, um, an article to see just yesterday, I think, about you know, people's attempts to, to sort of go entirely off grid. And they're, they're looking pretty rough after a month. <laughs> I don't know if I would survive a week, no. but it's a nice dream yeah. to have, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I, look, I think, you know, the reality is that these changes are here to stay. And mm. I, I, I think this knee-jerk reaction to just say, you know, it's wet markets or it's this or that is the wrong approach. Um, you know, we've got the we've got the ability to focus on high-risk pathways. Nothing we do is zero risk, and we just have to accept that there is some risk in the world, but what we need to do to control that is really identify what the high-risk pathways are and then develop solutions for those. So if that means the wildlife trade is, is the high-risk element of this, then we need, to, we need to deal with that. There are many other things that happens in, in wet markets that have no biosecurity risk, selling of flowers and things like that, that... Um, and other fresh produce, but the reality is that we need to we need to isolate. Okay, where is the risk here, and deal with that. And we need to also isolate. You know, we can just become so obsessed with wet markets, but the reality is that the last um, global pandemic rose in North American pig industry. So and that was swine swine flu, Andrew. I got the swine flu. I and tell you, pretty. it was not pretty. I got it from a friend who had travelled to South America in the height of swine flu, which was ill-advised. I picked her up from the airport and she carried it and gave it to me. I have never been so sick in my life. Yeah, I think we forget it, it had a massive impact. You know, I think the reality of global communication these days and the nature of COVID-19 
has meant that it's had a much more intense reaction than, than swine flu. But swine flu was a very serious global pandemic. Mm. And it emerged, we think, through failure of fire security in, in um, the North American pig industry, specifically in Mexico. But even, even the fact that we know so little about its origins are quite telling because mm. the scientific focus in Mexico just wasn't there. There wasn't the scientific reporting that there has been in this outbreak. And, and um, you know, I don't want to make any commentary on, mm. on the way this has been handled as a human pandemic. But what I would say is that uh, we've had an unprecedented insight um, into the early emergence of a pandemic here through the Chinese scientific community and, and their openness um, mm. and, and sharing information. So I think it's we have to be very careful. Learn. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think, you know, we have to be very careful because because if we apply the same the same criticisms um, to recent historical examples, we'll find ourselves looking pretty hypocritical. Yeah, look, I, I would I would agree with that as well. I think it's very easy to point fingers and point blame, but you know, over the annals of history, there's been everyone has a finger in a pie like this. So that's right. Yeah. And, <laughs> we've and got to remember that. Is that um, you know, the last couple of centuries of human pandemics, pandemics have emerged many different parts of the world and in very, very different settings. And if we're going to solve this problem, we're not going to solve it by focusing entirely on wet markets in China. We're going to think much more broadly about the way we interact with, with wildlife and the natural world. Andrew, this pandemic has come hot on the heels for Australians after a pretty terrible season of bushfires, a pretty catastrophic season, which had a huge negative impact on wildlife. Now that I guess You've had a couple of months to reflect on what's happened from the bushfires. I know we're distracted, obviously, with this current crisis, but what I guess what was the impact of the fires on our wildlife health, and is there is there scope for recovery, or will will these impacts be felt for decades or longer? Yeah, look, I think the impact is is clearly very significant, and you know we've been within the, the field of wildlife health talking about the threat of environmental causes of death and sickness in animals. And that includes things like these heat stress events where you'll have animals dying from exceptionally hot weather. Year before last, we saw um, a third of the entire population of world population of spectacled flying foxes in far north Queensland die in one single heat, um, heat wave. So, you know, we've known that, that these events occur and there has been a growing concern that these are going to become much, much more important in terms of really knocking populations down in a way that they can't easily recover from. Mm. And then this fire happened. And I think this bushfire for me was the point where these environmental causes of, of death and wildlife really are emerging as, as a, an existential, existential threat for species. And I think the issue here really isn't about recovery from this one event. If this event had happened in isolation, I think the chances of long-term recovery would be probably pretty good for many species. But the issue we have here is that it's not an isolation. Many of these habitats had recent, relatively recent fires and, and are already uh, in a recovery phase from those, particularly in some of our alpine areas. Many populations are affected by introduced species and other causes of decline, habitat degradation. And, and we also know that the frequency of these kinds of events and those other pressures are increasing, not decreasing. So it does concern me a lot that we'll have species that will be still in the recovery stage that will be hit by further fires, further heat stress events, pollution, 
habitat degradation, the impact of invasive species. And that's really where we can start to see this, this slipping back and, and just an inability for many species to, to recover really ever. And that, that's the great concern here. The future is a bit of a question mark, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the two elements here are that firstly, firstly, nature is extraordinarily resilient, but its resilience largely comes down to its diversity. You know, diversity, biodiversity, one of the key benefits to biodiversity is resilience. And we know that biodiversity is, is one of the most threatened aspects of the natural environment at the moment. I think, you know, the reality is, I mean, I'm an optimist and I think that there's room for change. I think the other thing that we, we sort of usually don't factor in is the ability of humans to shape um, ecosystems and, and the tools that we have. And so I think that the two things we need to really move to are firstly, we need to massively reduce the impact we have on the world. And, and I think that's really pretty clear. I think not many people out there don't think that something needs to change. And I think the other thing is that we need to accept that we, we will need to take a much more active role in, in almost gardening the natural world. You know, it's the days of, of wilderness areas that are just, you know, intact and don't need any kind of intervention are over. I think the reality is the world is changing so quickly and so dramatically that we have to take a much more proactive role in, in basically um, in sort of farming biodiversity and in, in, in creating new ecosystems and augmenting ecosystems in the future to help them adapt. That's a tool that hasn't been available during previous times of climate change. So, so I don't think it's time to give up hope, but I do think as a community we really need to change the way we value the natural environment and understand our interdependency with it to really move to that kind of base. All right. Well, I won't, I won't organise and move into a bunker underground just yet, Andrew. Not yet. No, no. <laughs> see, Thank how, you. see how the rest of the year pans out. <laughs> I'll give it this year and then I'll yeah. revisit. But look, thank you for your time talking us through all of this today. I've learned a lot from you. And I just want to also say thank you for finishing on a, a hopeful but also practical note. I think your last two points really give us the opportunity to know that we can make a difference if we put some collective effort into that. So thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au.